Praise God. Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to be in church this morning. It's a good place to be. We are so thankful to have been able to spend some time with you guys this weekend. How many of you were a part of our services Friday night, Saturday night? I was so thrilled by you guys being here and making the time to do that. And uh, I know the Lord is touched uh, when you and I carve out that time and make priority, uh, make the things of His Word, the things of His kingdom priority in our lives. And I'm so blessed and honored that you did that and that you guys would keep having us back. It's, uh, it's an honor to us. Uh, I know it's not like you guys take a vote and <laughs> everybody's in on it, but I do, I do sense a great amount of favor here. And uh, I don't know if you could totally understand that without having like traveled a bunch and been around in a bunch of different places. We're honored, genuinely honored to go anywhere and to be used by the Lord to do anything. But it is a special, um, I don't know what the word would be, treasure, delight to go into a place where you sense favor and honor with people. So we are so thrilled to call you guys friends. Uh, you guys are some of our favorite Canadians. In all of Canada. And, uh, not just that, but favorite people in all the world. We so love you guys, and we're so thankful for you and for Tim Horton, specifically. Uh, I, I call him Tim. I don't know what you call him. But Dan and I got some great fellowship time with Mr. Horton this weekend and just spent some time in his presence, and it was really a real treat. So comforting. Uh, you know, we don't have that in Texas. You can, you can in America, you can find the Tims, um, but they're hard to come by. Sometimes they're tucked into the corner of a gas station somewhere in the northeast part of our country. But you guys have them like every few yards. I mean, there's, a, there's another one. We left Tim Hortons yesterday morning, and on, just on the way back to the hotel, I said, want to go to Tim's? Want to go to Tim's? And we, there was about a half a dozen options just on the way back from Tim Hortons. Uh, but somehow I survived this trip without a donut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dan and I were laughing about it because the Lord has blessed both he and I with uh, wonderful wives. And I think my wife is watching this morning. And uh, I w we were laughing yesterday and we were sitting at lunch and I said to Dan, I said, if Sarah didn't have me, she would not have a working electronic device. Or one that's updated or with a battery or any of that. And so I feel like I bring that to her life. However, if I didn't have her, I would have had Pop-Tarts at every meal for the last 10 or 11 years of my life. Truth is, I'd be dead. So when you're deciding who the MVP of the relationship is, you know, yeah, perhaps I help her with electronics, but... <laughs> I'd be dead and gone if it wasn't for her. So I love you, sweetheart. Thank you so much. And uh, all that to say, I, I stayed away from Tim's Donuts this weekend in honor of her, in honor of her wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if I can make it out of Canada without stuffing a half dozen in my mouth. Wow. Is this church? Are we doing church this morning? Is that right? Sorry, I got lost there for a minute. Thank you, Lord. Father, we come before you today and worship you. We're so thankful for you and for the time that we've had together with you and around your word. We come before you, Lord, concerning this word this morning. We open up our eyes to see. We open up our ears to hear. We open up our hearts to understand more about who Jesus is in us and who we are in him. Father, I'm grateful to be here as a witness of a good thing that you've begun in this church. You began it uh, decades ago now, and it's, 
It's an honor and an awesome thing to watch you be faithful to the finish and faithful to carry this church and this body of believers into the next part, the next step, the next phase of your plan and assignment for this ministry, for this family, this congregation. Thank you, Father, for giving us opportunity to speak into it. And I ask you today to satisfy my mouth with good things. And we expect to see and to hear and to understand today. And we declare that, Jesus, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. We give you all the praise for the good things that will take place in here, the good things that will come out of our time together. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh, I did want to mention quickly how thankful I am to everybody who played a part in this weekend, all the ministry of helps from the front door in the parking lot to the children's help and the worship team. And, uh, you know, these things don't just happen without a group of people who are dedicated to making them happen. And many of the people who are so dedicated to this conference and this time being successful may not have even got to come in here because they're serving somewhere else. And I, I want you to know the Lord sees that. He receives it as a seed sown, and there is harvest coming. He will honor those who honor Him. So can we just give our Ministry of Helps team an awesome round of applause and show our appreciation to them? These are wonderful people, gracious people. Uh, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. We spent the last two days talking about what comes next. Because in God and for the life of the believer, there's always something coming. You do not, as they say, arrive at a place where faith is no longer required, where vision is no longer necessary. And I think sometimes we as faith people, and when I say that, you know what I mean, word of faith, um, household of faith, you know you know what that means when I say it, because you are that. That's the house that this represents. That's the house that I grew up in. I think that's one of the reasons I feel so at home coming here, because it's the same DNA. You know, we're family. Uh, but one of the things that I think we have uh, unknowingly or mistakenly led people to believe is that when you live and walk by faith, that you're pressing towards a time in your life where you no longer have any needs. And that's not necessarily the case. Because if you come to a place where you no longer have a need, then evidently you no longer have vision. Because that's what vision from God does, is it creates need. And we've established that over the last couple of days, that that's one of the ways you can identify that you're hearing from God. Concerning your life, your family, your goals, what's out in front of you. We talked about it last night, but you need to be able to identify at least a certain amount of impossibility in it. And when you can, that's a good indicator. I'm hearing from God. Because on our own, not many of us just want an impossible situation. The flesh doesn't like an impossible situation. Give me something I can handle, the flesh says. Give me something I can pay for. Give me something I can afford. But when you start going with the plan of God for your life, finding out what his assignment is, finding out what the calling is, and like we talked about yesterday, finding out what the anointing is, what you're anointed to be, what you're anointed to do, one of the things you're going to discover right away is it's bigger than what you have the ability to reach into your own pocket or your own bank account and meet the need for. But that's good news because that's an indicator. I'm hearing from God. He's talking to me. 
So you want to identify a certain amount of impossibility and vision from God creates need. It creates the need for you and I to continue to live and to walk by faith. So what I'm preaching to you and what us as people of faith should be believing and preaching and hearing is not that we're coming to a place where, oh, whew, I don't have any more need. I don't have to live by faith anymore. Wouldn't that be silly? That God would bring you into a place where you no longer require Him. That doesn't make sense. No, it's, it's faith in the goodness of God. I have found out that faith in His goodness will do things for you and put you in places that require more faith in His goodness. So we're talking about the future. We're talking about uh, being fit, being ready for what comes next. Last night we talked about being equipped for what comes next. We're very future-oriented, very future-minded in these last few days, but this is how we're supposed to be living our lives. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, God is speaking to Abram and it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now that's an important detail because if you back up into verse 7, it says there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And Abram said to Lot in verse 8, please let there be no strife between you and me. This is wisdom right here. Let there be no strife between us. And I want you to notice what happened the moment the strife got out of Abram's life. In verse 14, the Lord was able to speak to him. And that's the same thing that's true for you and I. Strife is one of those things that's so loud and so distracting and so demanding of your attention that it is and can be nearly impossible to hear the voice of God when you are entangled and embroiled in strife. At all costs, get the strife out. There ought to be a no strife policy. We do not tolerate strife in our homes, in our ministries. We ought to be merciful people, absolutely. Gracious people, giving and forgiving. But when it comes to our no tolerance policy, let it be concerning strife. And the moment the strife was gone, the Lord said to Abram, notice what he said in verse 14 again, Lift your eyes now. The King James says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, south, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. I want you to notice how simple the instruction of the Lord was to Abram. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. This is vision. The Bible says in Proverbs, what, 29, verse 18, without vision, what happens? People perish. The New King James says, without revelation. That's what vision is. The footnote there says prophetic vision. Revelation is just the light coming on, the cover coming off. Revelation, reveal. Have you ever seen a revealing where they take the cover away and ta-da, whatever it is, is there. Now you can see it. It was covered up, but now you can see it. That's what revelation is. It's not something that created the thing. It's just something that revealed it. It showed you what has been there all along. 
And that's what vision is, especially prophetic vision, or in other words, what God sees. And without that vision, the Bible said, people are perishing. The New King James says, people are casting off restraint. In other words, vision from God creates boundaries. Without it, people cast off restraint. They're over here. They're over there. There's no boundaries that they sense to live within. But that's what vision does is it creates boundaries. Now, don't mistake me saying boundaries and understand limitations. That's not the same thing. Vision doesn't create limitations, but it does create boundaries. Because within those boundaries that God sets out there for us, you are unlimited. You're unlimited in the amount of success you can experience within those boundaries. You are un unlimited in the amount of prosperity and abundance that you can experience and have and walk in inside those boundaries. Your truest limitations occur when you get outside those boundaries and you become your own source. Within the boundaries, he's your source. Outside of it, good luck because it's all on you. But inside, see, vision creates these boundaries. Isn't that what God said to Joshua? Joshua chapter 1, behold... Moses, my servant, is dead. I'd like to wake up to that word from God. <laughs> kind of like, tag, you're it, boy. <laughs> and it was his turn to lead these people. And God made him a promise, and he said, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And every place the sole of your foot will tread, I've given you. Now, many of us would end the conversation with God right there. I got a word. Every place the sole of my foot treads is mine. I want this. I want that. Give me this. Stepping on my neighbor's car. Stepping on his life. It's mine. I walked on it. We get, we get a little um, carried away with that because that's not where God ended the conversation with Joshua. He said, every place the sole of your foot will tread, I've given you. Between this river and this one, from this border... To that one. What is that? Boundaries. Every place you step within these boundaries, I've given you. Now that's big vision, but you got to understand the boundaries. So when God spoke to Abram and he said, lift up your eyes and look from this place in every direction, northward, southward, eastward, westward, this is what I'm giving you. But I want you to notice again how simple the instruction was. Lift up, look from. Can you say it with me? Lift up, look from. Now how different is that to letting down and looking at? And yet that's the way most people are living right now. Not with their eyes up looking from the place where they are, but with their eyes down looking at the place where they are. And people get so addicted to the present position, the current condition. And that's why they talk about it so easily. That's why people will go on and on and on, almost without you asking, about what's going on right now. What they have, what they don't have, what they wish they did have, what they want, what they need. And if you were to ask anybody, tell me about your life right now. They could describe with great detail the condition they're in. But you and I as believers, 
And people who are after this prophetic vision, this revelation, and the desire to see what God sees, we ought to be able to speak with as much confidence about the future that people do about the present. And you think to yourself, well, how do you, I, I can't be confident about the future. I, I've never been there. Maybe you don't know all the details, but if you know that your God is good, then you know your future is good. And that your future is nothing to be afraid of. We've talked about being ready for what comes next. We've talked about being equipped for what comes next. And this morning I want to talk about being unafraid of what comes next. Again, something's coming. You ought to be saying that every day. Something's coming. And living with the expectation, something's coming. But I want to add something to that. For the believer, something good is coming. Oh, are you hearing me this morning? This is a word to you today. Something good is coming. Joel, Jamie, for this church, guess what? Something good is coming. And it's close. Something good is coming. But you're going to have to learn to see and follow this instruction the way Abram did. Lift up your eyes. Look from the place. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you with this. Ask Him to help you almost step outside of yourself and hear your own words. Observe your own life. Am I, am I spending more time with my eyes down looking at the place? Or are my eyes up looking from this place? And that's the good news. Even if you don't like where you are, that's okay. This is just the place you look from. Not the place you look at, the place you look from. I don't know if you've ever been high up in an airplane or something and flying over your own hometown. You look down, oh, I can see my house from here. Standing up high on a mountain, I can see my house from here. Well, guess what? I can see my future from here. Right here where I'm standing. I can see what he's called me to do. And even again, if you don't know all the details about it, you can be confident in this. It's good because he's good. Amen. So a vision from God is two parts. The first part, I believe, prophetic vision, revelation, is seeing what God sees. I, I saw this played out. Maybe I've shared this with you guys before, but it's one of the clearest demonstrations I've ever seen in my own life. The Lord helped me with it. I've had so many good Bible teachers, grew up with great Bible teachers. But you know who some of the best and my favorite are? My kids. They have taught me so much about the Lord, the heart of the Father. And a number of years ago, we had taken the kids when they were much smaller. Justice is eight now, and Jesse's five. I think they might be watching this morning. Love you guys. And uh, we took them to Disney World. I don't know if you've ever been to the Magic Kingdom. Anybody ever been to the Magic Kingdom? We see a few hands around here. And it is. It's truly magical. You guys have been, I think, right? The Magic Kingdom, they call it. And why is it magical? Because you spend everything. <laughs> Everything you've got just to get there. And you wait hours in line for something that takes seconds. And you get rained on and then you sweat buckets and then you walk miles and miles all day long. And somehow you're there for 36 hours in a 24-hour period. It's, it's magical. It's, and it, you just get so worn out. Now, none of that's the magic. The magic comes like six months to a year later when you're all sitting around going, that was amazing. We should do that again. <laughs> Folks, that's magical. That is, that borderlines like black magic, sorcery kind of stuff. 
And so we were at the Magic Kingdom one time when the kids were much smaller. And uh, if you've been, then you know you're not allowed to leave until you've seen the parade at night. That 9 p.m. parade. And you just, you're on your last leg and you think, God, get me out of here. But again, you can't leave. So we go, but we're not the hardcore people that get to the 9 p.m. parade at 6.30 for the good seats right there on Main Street. We show up a few minutes before it starts. So obviously we're rows deep, buried in the crowd. And we've got these little kids. So I think Justice was maybe, maybe five at the time. Jesse might be two, three years old, something like that. And... Um, you don't really remember as an adult what it was like to live your life down there. We ought to have more compassion on these little guys. Do you remember a time in life when everything was in your way? You were just the shortest thing in the room everywhere you went and kneecaps, that was your view. That was your perspective of life. That's what you saw. And you just live life like this all the time. And so these little ones at this parade were buried in the crowd. They're not going to see a thing, are they? Unless and until, what happens? Daddy reaches down and picks them up. And I've got pictures of this, me holding both these kids at the same time. And what happens in a moment like that is it's such a shift and change of perspective for them. It, it goes, the view goes from everything in your way, and now all of a sudden, you're up at daddy's eye level. And now you're seeing what daddy sees. And even if it's just for a few moments, you're lifted up above everything that's been in your way. And now they see what I see. Now, when this parade starts, all the ambient light goes down and the parade lights come on and it's lights and sound and it's flashing and it's bright and it's these giant floats and all these dancers and these people coming out and it really is for these little ones it's like sensory overload man I mean there is so much to look at it's so bright and it's so loud and I'm, I look over and my son Justice his eyes are just this big watching this thing come down Main Street right at him I look over at Jesse and it's almost like it's too much for her you know what she did she buried her head right here in my shoulder. Why? Again, because it is so bright. It is so loud. And it's interesting that at that point in time, they are seeing what I see. But the second part of vision is not only seeing what God sees, it's seeing how God sees it. So for Jesse, looking at this parade, it almost strikes fear because for all she knows that's an actual six-foot mouse <laughs> in a top hat and cane tap dancing right at her <laughs> folks what do you do with that you know what I mean if you've never seen this before what how do you process that information now when I look at it it doesn't scare me because I see a starving college kid in a mouse <laughs> costume I'm not afraid. So what's the difference? She's seeing what I see, but not yet seeing how I see it. That's the second part of vision. Now what's so cool about this is a couple of years later, 
when the magic has been worked and we're back there again. And she's just a, a year or two older. We're standing on that same street watching that same parade and this time she's so full of life. She's soaking it all up, enjoying it. What happened between the time it scared her and the time she's loving it? She just grew. She just kept living. And what used to strike fear, now she finds a lot of joy in. This is the case with prophetic vision and the assignment of God for your future. Because there comes a time in the life of every believer where your faithful father will pick you up and he will lift you up above every distraction, above all the fray, above everything that's been in your way. And even if it's just for a few moments, you are going to see what he sees when he looks at you and when he looks at your future. But you're going to have a decision to make right then because I guarantee you this, it's going to be bigger than what you could dream of. It's going to require more and you're going to look at what he's called you to do. Then you're going to look back at the place where you are. And you're going to say to yourself, how in the world do I get from here to there? And for many people, this is the reason right here where they, why they choose to live without vision. It's too much. It's sensory overload. Too big, too bright. Like we've said before, too expensive, too expansive. I can't see myself doing that. And so instead of walking by faith towards it, they turn around and run from it in fear because they think there's no way. But listen to me, even if you get a glimpse of what the future holds, and even if it doesn't compute or make natural sense of how you can get from where you are to that place, here's what you do. You just keep growing. You just keep walking. You don't have to be there right now. It's the walk of faith. And the step that you take from where you are right now does this. It lays foundation for the next step, which lays foundation for the one after that and lays foundation for the one after that. And if you just keep walking and just keep growing, there will come a time where you not only see what God sees for your life, you'll begin to see how God sees it. And the very thing that used to startle you and make you afraid and make you break out in the cold sweats and you think, I could never do that, I could never be that, now you look at it and it starts to bring you joy. Now you start to get excited about it. You're expecting good things to come because you just kept walking. You just kept growing. And now you're not just seeing what he sees, but how he sees it. Unafraid of what comes next. But you have to deal with this fear. Fear cannot be tolerated. Fear concerning the future cannot be allowed to exist and remain in your heart. Go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at a few scriptures this morning. Can you handle it? Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 14, Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him, I like this, who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's what Jesus did in and through his death. 
That's why we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 last night, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Jesus went around undoing what Satan had done. The burdens and the yokes that Satan had installed and put on people, Jesus went around lifting those burdens and destroying those yokes. And through his death, what did he do? He destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 15 goes on and says, And release those. Again, this is through his death. What did he do? He released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is why Satan hates Jesus. This reason right here. Does he hate him because of, you know, people being born again? Sure he does. The miracles that he performs in their life. Yeah, absolutely. The restoration that Jesus performs in relationships and marriages and lives all over the world. Does Satan hate that? Sure he does. But I believe this is the reason, reason number one right here, why Satan hates Jesus. It's because Jesus ruined death. Jesus completely ruined death. Because until Jesus, death was the man. Up until Jesus, death controlled mankind. And not just death, but the fear of it. That's why it says here that he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. People lived in bondage, imprisoned by this fear of death, the fear of what's coming, fear of what's ahead. And Jesus completely ruined it. He ruined it through his own death. He ruined death. For everybody else. <laughs> really, he ruined death for Satan. What did he do? He took the sting out of it. In Isaiah 61, this is the scroll that Jesus read from in Luke chapter 4 when he said, verse 161, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. We talked about this last night. He's given Jesus this burden, removing yoke, destroying power to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To, now listen, this goes on. This is what the anointing does and is for. Listen to this. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn. In Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Do you notice how many times there he talked about helping people who are mourning? Every, everything listed here in Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4, people being impoverished, people being brokenhearted, people being in captivity, people who are bound, people who are blind, people who are mourning. Everything listed here was the permanent state of humanity until Jesus came. Until Jesus came, this is what mankind looked like. 
mankind as a whole was poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, and in mourning. Now you look this word mourning up and it means exactly what you think it means. The response to death. This is how people responded to death. And until Jesus, this was the only available response to death. Because it was so final. It was the end. And people lived all their lifetimes subject to the fear of it. In bondage to it. And that's what fear is. Especially fear of the future. Fear of what's coming. It's bondage. Fear is a prison. It's not just a feeling. It's a spirit. And it's a spirit that keeps people imprisoned. Ephesians talked about the condition that you and I were in until, he said, Christ, the anointed. Until you came into contact with the anointing, your life looked just like everybody else's. But Jesus ruined all that. He ruined death. He ruined death not only for the one who dies, but for the ones who remain. Now, all of a sudden, there's another option besides mourning. Are you tracking with me? In here, he talked about the oil of joy. The oil of joy. And this is the trade that he's making. All of this is a trade. The gospel for poverty. Healing for the broken heart. It's all a trade. Listen to this trade. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It's like taking one thing off and putting something else on. It's, it's going through what every single one of us husbands have been through when we endeavor to dress ourselves. And we come out where our wives or our family is waiting for us to go and your wife looks at you and says, um, is that what you're going to wear? Which, allow me to translate if you don't already know. What she really said is, that's not what you're going to wear. It sounded like a question. It wasn't. So what, what, is, what is she saying? Go back in there. Take that off. And put something else on. Right? Anybody ever been here before? Sure. Well, it's a change. It's literally a change. Well, this same language is used throughout the New Testament. And Paul wrote to people and said, put off the old man and put on the new one. You look those words up, put off, put on, it literally translates to sink into clothing. He's talking about your church clothes. He's talking to the church about what we wear. Not just what we wear to church, what we wear because we are the church. These are our church clothes. I grew up with church clothes. I grew up in a time where there were clothes as a kid you had that you wore to church and only to church. You didn't wear your church clothes to play in. You didn't wear your church clothes to school. These were your church clothes. And I got to be honest with you. A lot of your church clothes were very uncomfortable to the flesh. You'd much rather be in comfy clothes than church clothes. But there are clothes that you and I as the church are called to wear that many times may not be 
comfortable to the flesh. But unlike our natural church clothes where you can't wait to get them off, these clothes don't come off, or they ought not. We should not be quick to take off our robe of righteousness. Be clothed with humility, the scripture says. That's not something you put on in a hurry on the way Sunday morning and then take off just before you fall on the couch to watch some football. <laughs> humility is your church clothes that you wear all the time. Yeah. Scripture talks to us about being clothed. He says, put on the Lord Jesus. This is not something you put on and take off. These are the church clothes that we wear, not just to church, but because we are the church. Well, just like that, he says here, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You've got to take off heaviness and put on praise. He talks to us about the oil of joy instead of mourning. A number of years ago, Sarah got into essential oils. You guys have those? <laughs> essential oils. So we have a cabinet full of these tiny little bottles that, that are supposed to be little miracle workers, you know? These little essential oils. There's an oil for this. There's an oil for that. There's an oil for everything. And uh, I've come to realize that of all the oils, the oil of joy, this is the most essential. This is the most essential oil there is, the oil of joy. I need the Lord to help us with this here. Go with me to the book of, oh, 1 Thessalonians. Jamie, you said something this morning when you were speaking, and um, it was the exact phrase the Lord gave me in preparation this morning. We're going to connect the dots. I don't know if you heard yourself say that, but that, that was confirmation to me that that's what we're doing this morning. We are connecting some dots. Sometimes there's a number of dots you've got to go to, and every scripture is another dot, but it's about to paint a very beautiful picture for us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Don't be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died lest you sorrow like those who have no hope. There's supposed to be a different response to death. We're supposed to respond to death differently than the rest of the world. The word hope is the word expectation. We don't really use it in that way. When we say, I hope so, oftentimes it comes across more like, I wish or I desire. But the Bible word hope it's a lot more serious and a lot more weighty than that. It literally has to do with expectation. Expectation concerning what's coming. There's something coming. There's something good coming. And faith and people of faith are really the only ones who have any right or reason to hope for anything good. Because it's expectation. It's confident expectation. It's speaking with the same confidence concerning the future that you do concerning the present. It's that kind of expectation. Something's coming. A woman who's pregnant with child, we say she is expecting. Uh, something's coming. 
And she is confident of that. Especially the closer she gets to the time where it's not just coming but here, there's evidence of that expectation. And there's no wondering about it. There's no wondering about it. As she carries this child way out here in front of her, she doesn't say, I think I'm pregnant. I've had a few feelings of pregnant. No, something's coming. It's expectation. You are confident that something is on its way. And what a great picture that is. And a lot of you ladies, you, you remember reading that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? Well, that's what I'm talking to you about this morning. Expecting. Having expectation of good concerning the future. But the only person who has any right to expect something good is the one who's got faith in someone good. Okay, I've never said it quite like that before. Did you hear it? The only person, the only person who can expect and be confident of something good is the one who's got faith in someone good. Everybody else, they can desire good. They can wish for good and quote-unquote hope for the best possible outcome. But again, that's a different word. I'm talking to you about confident expectation. John chapter 14. Let's connect another dot. Are you hanging in there? Can you take just a few more minutes? This is cool. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And this conversation he had with them, John 13, John 14, 15, 16, 17. If you look in your Bible, there is a lot of red. Jesus said a lot of things here. But what he was telling them was, in essence, I'm going away. And he's trying to communicate to them, it's actually better for you if I go away. Now, we have the luxury of 2,000 years of understanding what he meant when he said that. You imagine being one of those disciples who's just spent every day of the last three years of your life with him. A man who has said things you've never heard, shown you things you've never dreamed possible that you would see. And now all of a sudden he's telling you it's better for you if I go away. If that was me standing there, I'd think, Jesus, you've been right about a lot of stuff, but you are wrong about this. It's not better for me when you're not here. I remember when you weren't here. This is better. And he spends these chapters really endeavoring to convince these guys, it's better for you. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, but, but sorrow has filled your heart. He even said this to them. I have many more things that I want to say to you, but you can't hear them. Why? Because of that sorrow. That kind of irritates me a little bit. That there was more Jesus wanted to say and that I could have had here in the scripture. But because these guys didn't get it. But the good news is, he said, when the helper comes, he'll guide you into all truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to continue this conversation. When you're in a place where you can hear it. That's what he's communicating to these guys all throughout these chapters. And in John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Other translations say, Don't let it be agitated. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Now like this, verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. These guys are full of sorrow. They're confused, but their confusion has to do with the present and not understanding how the future can be good. And so Jesus is talking to them, but his method of cheering them up, if you will, is not to change the present. It's not to try to fix the here and now. It is to draw their attention to what's coming. This is how he goes about fixing a troubled heart. And really how you have to go about it because he said, you don't let your heart be troubled. And our response would be, okay, well, if I'm not going to let my heart be troubled, then something here and now is going to have to change because the here and now is really troubling my heart. But Jesus said, that's not what's going to fix a troubled heart. Here's what's going to fix a troubled heart. Lift up your eyes. Look from this place where not just to the rest of your time here on earth, not just the rest of this day. Come on, stretch. How many of you believe that what Jesus said is true? And that heaven is a real place. And that he really did go to prepare a place for us. And that there are many mansions there. And that it's a place designed and prepared for you. And that he is coming again. And we are going to that place. Who in here believes that? Bold enough to raise a hand and say, I believe that. Now you know that makes you different, right? You know that makes you in the eyes of this world crazy that you think there's, a, there's something beyond the grave. Well, we are different and we're supposed to be. This is one of those things that makes us different. I believe that's true. I believe in the reality of heaven. I believe in the glory of it, the brightness of it, the perfection of it, the joy of it of it right i mean how many of you believe the bible's true when he's when the bible said there will be no more crying there will be no more dying there'll be no sorrow there'll be no loss there will be no mourning huh you believe that you believe that place is coming that something good is coming well heaven is just as much if not more so the plan of god for our lives than anything down here as a matter of fact, it would be more so just by the sheer amount of time that we're going to spend there. This is quick. This is a vapor. Done. That's eternity. Now check this out. This is how powerful hope is. Hope, the expectation of good, has the ability, while you stand in the rotten here and now, Hope has the ability to transcend time and space and reach into the joy of heaven. Grab a hold of it and bring it into the here and now. That's powerful. We start to get into stuff here that's way above my pay grade. I mean, we're talking like quantum physics and quantum spirituality. The... the, 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 the uh, possibility of being able to 
tap in to the world that's to come and bring elements of it into here. Is that not what Jesus said? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is where? That's the ability to reach into heaven. Oh, come on, listen to me. Grab a hold of some of what's there and bring it into now. This is why I'm not afraid of the future. Because I've got some of it and the joy that's in it, that oil of joy, that essential oil. And through hope and expectation of what's coming, I reach into the future and I bring that joy into now. That's why we don't mourn. That's why we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. That's why death is completely ruined. Because before Jesus, death was death and that was the end. And there was much to be afraid of. But because Jesus died for you, do you hear me? He died, and we read that like, well, he died for me as, you know, the sacrifice. But, but hear, it in, in, hear it with the emphasis here. He died for you, like in your place, as your substitute. He did the dying for you. And what he did was take all the sting out of it, all the grief out of it. And because he did it for me, now there's nothing for me to be afraid of. And when I made Jesus the Lord of my life, and I believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth that he died and rose again, the Bible records it that I died with him. So why would I be afraid of dying? I did it once. It was awesome. I already did that once already. It was glorious. Why should I be afraid of doing it again? Jesus ruined death and gave us something else to expect concerning our future. And he's teaching us how to reach out even when it feels like hell on earth. What do we do? Well, if it's hell on earth, why don't you reach out and grab some of heaven? Bring it into hell on earth and watch hell on earth bow its knee to the presence of heaven. Has to. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at this last scripture. I have never seen this until early this morning. Matthew chapter 6. This is an awesome, awesome portion of Scripture. Beginning in about verse 25, we don't have time to read the whole thing. But you're familiar with it. It's Jesus saying, do not worry about your life. Isn't that what he said? Verse 25, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Well, I guess we are going to read it. Verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? See, this is how you get rid of worry. You find out how valuable you are. You find out what you're worth. Verse 27, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? See, worry doesn't add anything to you. 
It'd be foolish for a short person to think that being worried about being short is going to make them tall. Isn't that what Jesus said? You can't add one cubit to your stature by worrying about how tall you are. Well, it's just as foolish to think that worrying about your money is going to add one dollar to you. Joel, it's just as foolish to think that being worried about church growth is going to add one person to the church. Because worry doesn't add anything. It takes away. Worry subtracts. It doesn't add. Verse 28, so why do you worry? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. How many times has he said that in the last few verses? Do not worry. Do not worry. The King James says, take no thought. Amplified, I think it is, says, take no anxious thought. See, thoughts are taken. They come, but you get to decide whether or not you take it. And he said, take no anxious thought. Do not worry. Now, those words, do not, if you were to look them up in the original language, they could have and maybe even should have been translated like this. Stop it. <laughs> and there is one translation, the Weiss translation, that bears that out. Stop worrying about your life. Now, how could Jesus look at a crowd of people, a bunch of nameless faces, and be able to say to all of them as a blanket statement, stop worrying? How could he do that? Because worry is natural. And people say, well, I worry because I love you. I worry because I'm your parent. I worry because it's only natural. And you're exactly right. It's only natural. And Jesus said, stop it. Stop the worry. Why? Because just as hope is expectation of good, worry is expectation of bad. The platform of a life built on faith yields an expectation called hope. The platform of fear yields an expectation called worry. Can you see that? Both of them are an expectation. And just as hope is expectation of the future, worry is expectation of the future. Worried that it's going to be bad. Hope is confident it's going to be good. Worry is expectation of bad. And this is why Jesus said, stop it. Stop it. Can you hear the seriousness in his voice? Stop it. Stop it now. Stop worrying about your food. Stop worrying about your clothing. Stop worrying about your money. Stop worrying about your housing. All this future stuff. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to live? All of its future. I'm worried about what's coming. Worried about what's coming. And Jesus said, stop it. So if Jesus said, stop it, and you go ahead and do it anyway, what's that called? Sin. It's the sin of disobedience. Worry is sin. When he told you not to and you do it anyway, that's sin. Because whatever is not of faith is sin. Whew, okay. He said in verse 31 again, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? See, really the expectation, that question, the expectation is real, revealed, there's not going to be anything to eat. Worry says there's not going to be enough. 
He says, don't worry, saying, what are we going to drink? That's the expectation. There's not going to be anything. We're going to starve. We're going to die. We're not going to have enough. It's the fear of death. What shall we wear? The expectation, we're not going to have anything. Jesus said in verse 32, After all these things the Gentiles seek for your heavenly Father. Never seen that till just now. Heavenly. What are we talking about? Grabbing a hold of heaven and the will of heaven and the atmosphere of heaven and bring it into now. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You've heard this before, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, verse 34, this is what I've never seen until just a few hours ago. Jesus said, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. See, we're talking about our future. We're talking about what's coming. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. And this could be confusing at first glance. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's he saying? Worry. If you worry now about tomorrow, again, worry is expectation. What are you doing? You are reaching into the future of tomorrow and bringing the fear of the unknown and bringing it into today. Can you see how hope grabs a hold of the future that's good and brings it in? Yeah. Worry grabs a hold of a fearful future and brings it into right now. This is why Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Now, this whole passage was about you dealing with worry, but I really mean like dealing with it. A lot of times we say, well, I'm just dealing with this. I'm dealing with some worry. Really what you mean is worry is dealing with you. But if you're really dealing with it, then you deal with it in faith. And you, what he's saying is, refuse to worry. Stop it. Stop it by faith. Take off those clothes and put on these. Take off that spirit of heaviness. Put on this garment of praise. Stop the worry. And what he's saying is, every single day, you're going to have opportunity to yield to worry or to resist it. And what you don't have to do is reach out into tomorrow in fear and worry and expectation of bad and bring that into today. No, stop it. You'll have an opportunity to fight tomorrow's worry tomorrow. Today, let's do this. You see what he's saying? You see what he's saying? So whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, or any day on this earth, how do you do it? You do it with faith and hope. Faith in God yields an expectation called hope. And with that hope, I have access to the atmosphere of heaven. I don't have to mourn. I don't have to grieve. I don't have to be sorrowful or fearful about tomorrow. I can grab a hold of heaven's, not just heaven's atmosphere, but heaven's supply. I can grab a hold of the, the miracle atmosphere of heaven. I can grab a hold of that, the provision of heaven, the treasure that's been laid up in heaven. And I can pull elements of it into the here and now. That's powerful. And nobody else but the born-again believer has the ability to do that.
We're an amazing people. I mean that. This recreated man, we are not mere men. We are recreated, reborn into the image of God. And Jesus said, have faith in God or have the faith of God. That same creative ability resident within God Almighty, there is a measure of that within you and within me. And we have the ability to reach into the future. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that, Joel. I, I, I'm saying it and I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is working it in you. How do you do it? Well, how did God create? Words. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Take no thought saying. You, you take a hold of the worry and fear of tomorrow and you create it today. You manifest it today saying. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to drive? How are we going to pay these bills? What am I going to do about the kids? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What are you doing is you are creating. Your words are creating an atmosphere of turmoil, trouble, mourning. But if you will take his thought and say his word, you'll create. You'll create an atmosphere of hope, joy, and expectation of good. And you won't wait on the natural elements around you to change. You're not looking at that stuff anyway. This is just the place you're looking from. Not at. I'm just looking from here. Thank you, Lord. Is this helping you this morning? Thank you, Father. I believe He's given us answers to them. I believe He's given us answers to them. This has come up all weekend long, and I want to deal with it this morning. Fear about the future. Your future is nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> when Sarah and I this past summer with the kids, we'd been invited to speak and minister in her home church where she grew up as a young kid in um, Russellville, Arkansas. So we got in the car and took a road trip with the kids, headed north out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area through Oklahoma on our way to Arkansas. And as we were headed north, uh, on, I think, Highway 69, long about a town called Atoka, Oklahoma. We're driving along, and on the side of the road, there's this big yellow sign with big black block letters that caught my attention because it said, Hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. <laughs> Which was like, thank you, road sign. I appreciate that information. That's just good advice, just in general in life. It made more sense about a quarter mile down the road when on the left, there's this huge prison. <laughs> and it was exactly what you imagine when you think prison. High fence, razor wire uh, surrounding this whole facility. This is a prison that houses nearly a thousand inmates. What is a prison? It is confinement. It's the ability to only go so far. And then you can't go any further. It's walls that keep people in. Keep people in one place. And the truth is, fear is a prison. And it's not a prison that just houses a thousand inmates, or even ten thousand, or a hundred thousand. 
There are millions upon millions upon millions of people all over this world today imprisoned in the prison of fear. Totally frozen in one place. Why? Afraid about the future. Refuse to take that next step because fear, like a wall, prevents them from moving any further. But through his death, through his death, we have been released from the bondage of fear. Released. What's that sound like to you? Freedom. I believe I'm looking this morning at a room full of escaping inmates. Is that right? Oh, thank you, Lord. Somebody say, I'm free. I'm coming out of this prison this morning. I am free from this place. You've got to see yourself free. You've got to see yourself busting out of these walls. That's you. You are no longer imprisoned to fear concerning your future. And if there's anybody that would be bold enough to meet me at this altar and say, yeah, that's me. I've been imprisoned. You got a glimpse of what God's called you to, but there's been fear in stepping out. Musicians, you guys coming back up for me. If there's been anybody in here that would allow me to pray with them this morning concerning fear for the future, I want you running towards it, not away from it. Running at it in faith, not from it in fear. Is there anybody in here this morning that would like prayer of agreement concerning that? Thank you, Lord. Come on up. Let's get it settled. Okay. Let's get this settled this morning. As you're coming up and everybody in this room, say it out loud. My future, My future is nothing to be afraid of. I'm confident that what is coming is good. Because I'm confident that my God is good. His plan is good. He's faithful to His word. He's faithful to His promise. And He's faithful to me.